0: Good evening everyone. Need that. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our evening Dhamma. So starting tonight we'll be looking at the Eightfold Noble Path, one by one. Tonight we'll be looking at the first path factor Right view And as I said, it's um, it, the Buddha puts them in this order This is the order they've been handed down to us Right view first But in many ways the path is better organized with morality first so when we call this the first path factor in some ways it is the first path factor to arise because you need some sort of right view to actually cultivate morality but in most understandable uh, ways ways of understanding the Eightfold Noble Path we put morality first you need morality before you can develop concentration and you need concentration or focus before you can cultivate wisdom which is right view so right view belongs to the wisdom category that being said we develop all of them in tandem sometimes with a greater focus on one than another but they they go together and if they don't go together, they are not right. Concentrate. They are not right uh, at all. Something I didn't mention yesterday, which probably should have gone with that talk, is all of these factors depend on each other. So if you have only one of them, it's not right. These are only right view, right thought, and so on when they all come together. And that sh- should have been clear by what I said. But it's important to think of. You can't just develop one of them without cultivating the others. If you're lacking in any one of these, you're never going to make it. Oh anyway, right view. So right before we talk about right view, we have to talk about view. View is um, it's probably the most important especially for a newcomer to Buddhism most important aspects of Buddhism to understand wrong view wrong view is the big problem but the Buddha would talk about wrong view but he often just talked about views so rather than say right or wrong he made this distinction between seeing things clearly and having a belief he was quite against the reliance upon belief he said if you say I believe X what you're doing is protecting the truth he called this protecting the truth why are you protecting the truth because you know unless you're lying about that it really is true you do believe X unless you're joking and say i believe the world is flat or that kind of thing but if you actually believe it then saying i believe x is true it's a true statement but it has nothing to do with the truth in the sense of the qu- the, the content of your statement the truth of x right i believe x i believe such and such a statement, such and such a reality I believe in God Well, okay, that's true, you do believe in God It says nothing about whether God exists And I think we miss this You hear this a lot, where people say Well, I believe such and such And it's really a, f- a fairly meaningless statement In terms of the, the, um, the truth of it In terms of what is true, right? It's interesting to know, you know, if you believe in God, then that's, it's interesting for me to know that you believe in God. As a Buddhist, it doesn't, um, it doesn't mean much to us. It's not something that impresses us. Um, but okay, so you believe X. But is said only when, if you then say X is true... Then you've got a challenge You need some evidence And you're opening yourself up to the potential of being wrong What you say might be wrong And that's where wrong view comes in, of course When your beliefs turn out to be out of line with reality And that's, I mean, it it should go without saying that that's important But we tend not to focus on that aspect We're less concerned about um, Whether our beliefs are actually in line with reality And simply whether I believe them Because we tend to think it's not possible to know How could you know whether God exists? I don't know, I don't think it's possible to know whether God exists Except in so far I'll talk a little bit about that later maybe But um, and because we think you know, you, can't, you can't know these things then, Well then it's all just up to belief now, isn't it? And so that's an important point That Yes, it's, it's, it's really bad when your beliefs are out of line with reality But even before that Even before that the, There's a sense that there's something wrong with holding a belief at all Depending upon beliefs, right? Not even bothering to find out whether it's true or not Of course it's a problem when it turns out not to be true Or if it turns out not to be true But it turns out to be also a problem for people who have right view If you have quote-unquote right view And again it's not right view according to the Eightfold Noble Path Because it's not connected with the other seven path factors But if you have read much of the buddha's teaching, and you believe uh, to the best of your ability in the buddha's teaching, in the things that the buddha's taught, yes, I believe what the buddha taught well then you have right view, right? in in the sense that the view that you have, the belief that you have is in line with the buddha's teaching it's not right view, in the sense, it's not noble right view and it's a problem, it's a big problem because by relying on that you blind yourself to the uh, you close yourself off to the observation, to the investigation of what the truth is you already know the truth this happens, it's common for Buddhists who already know what is true they do a lot of studying, a lot of reading and they already know, you know Four Noble Truths, everybody knows the Four Noble Truths, right? It's humbling to think that this thing right in front of us on the page These Four Noble Truths that I've been talking about Not very hard to understand But but simply understanding, if we really understood these, we'd be enlightened That's all that's standing in the way That's all that's standing between us and enlightenment Is these Four Truths that we already know Right? But it happens often that Buddhists who know these things Aren't so inclined to meditate They already know Why would I need to meditate to find those things out? I already know what those are So it's only through meditation that we realize "Ah, I didn't really know What I had was view What I had was view So right view in a sense is the giving up of views Right view is A view that is based on knowledge, it's based on experience, it's based on seeing you know we're talking about the Four Noble Truths, right view is seeing the Four Noble Truths, seeing the truth of suffering. So when we talk about insight practice or the practice of mindfulness to cultivate insight This is what we're doing, is we're trying to understand We're trying to see the truth As you see that the things that you thought were Stable, satisfying, controllable You're watching your thoughts You're watching your emotions You're watching your feelings Watching your movements of your body And these things that you thought were stable, satisfying, controllable Turn out to be impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable Unpredictable Unmanageable And you start to see, come closer to seeing the truth of suffering Until finally, after some time It's like an epiphany, it just hits you It's true Everything that arises ceases. All formations are unsatisfying, are in a sense stressful, just because they arise. So it's very important. I mean, it's not a it's not it's not a complicated teaching. Of course, you know, the first nom- the the right view is knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. So if we were to really give a talk on Right View, it would include talking about the Four Noble Truths. You see, so this is how it all folds back into each other. I talked about the Four Noble Truths already, so we don't have to go into detail about that. But it's very important, this teaching on on views. What we mean by Right View is not just I believe in the Four Noble Truths. It's not at all. The concept of right view is very important to understand That it's not right view to believe something, that's view And views are no good And not no good, in fact they are good, but they're, they're insufficient They're insufficient and even right views can get in the way of finding right view When we first start to meditate though, it's very important to have right view Right view in the sense We need two, two terms for these Mundane right view So when we talk about noble right view That's what we mean by That's what the topic is tonight But when we talk about mundane right view It is important to have it when you begin to meditate It is in many ways easier for Buddhists to meditate um, Because they already in many cases have a sense of the nature of reality if you believe in a soul, a self then when you sit down to meditate you think this body is myself you, you, you believe it you know that's how you approach the meditation if you believe in God and how are you going to gain some sense of, of independence and, and uh, responsibility beliefs, they get in the way and if you don't believe in karma it's not so bad, the worst is if you believe in self in the sense of this body um, being a self and so the first thing that goes in the meditation, the first hurdle that you have to cross is making this paradigm shift from seeing this body as an entity and even the mind as a soul, as an entity To seeing that what really exists is experiences arising and ceasing So you have to take a phenomenological perspective on reality It doesn't matter whether this body exists in an abstract conceptual sense It only matters um, what can be experienced right? There's something special about experience is the point Beliefs and views and ideas and concepts, these are all just, these are all inferior in the sense of true and and real to actual experience. Actual experience is undeniable, right? This is Descartes came to this. Really, I I appreciate Descartes for this. Cogito ergo sum. I always thought it was kind of silly. I said, well, you know, that's a belief in a self, isn't it? Probably he did believe in a soul and a self, but he came up with something quite well reasonable. It's clear that he actually was, in a way, meditating. That's a very mundane realization, but it's 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 important. You know, maybe he was a Buddhist in a past life and just didn't get far enough, and so when he came back as Descartes, he uh, he still had this. It's quite possible in the past life he might have been a monk or something. But, you know, we get off track. He never became enlightened, so he instead became Christian and, and went on to become a philosopher and maybe did bad things as well. It's not, it's not because you're a Buddhist and do some meditation, you're, you're going to be good forever. But Descartes was, was on to something. He saw it. He realized it. He realized, hey, no matter what I might be wrong about, I can't be wrong about the fact that I'm cognizing, because I have to cognize in order to be wrong, right? Cognition is is right. Consciousness is uh, is undeniable. I mean, sure, you can deny it. You can deny anything. I deny that I'm uh, I'm conscious. It's yes, but it's meaningless. We're conscious. It's, it's questioning that is just foolish you can question whether this body exists right i could be a brain in a vat being fed stimuli that make me think there's a body sitting here that's possible because it's abstract but i can't be i can't be tricked into thinking i'm conscious that's just it's nonsense to think that So that's the important distinction. That's where right view begins. When you begin to move away from I believe that I, and, and this is, this is this, that is that, to just seeing things as they are. And it's quite powerful and it's something that we would normally think is beyond us. Hey, you know, seeing things as they are, how do you do that? Right? It's wonderful, we have this here. This is what is so incredible about the Buddha. Is we have this path You want to know how to see things as they are? You don't have to believe me You don't have to listen to me Here you go Be mindful Guaranteed Without doubt you will see things as they are You'll become independent You won't require any belief in anyone Or anything That's the idea of right view. That's number one. Seven more to go. And as usual, I'll take questions. I see there are some questions I've prepared. Um, Some of the questions I've taken out, they weren't necessarily bad. But um, in order to. I'm not. It's not really. I don't to put it simply. I don't answer questions on here about other meditation traditions, um, really speculative questions, questions that aren't related to meditation practice. I try to avoid. It gets to be too much, and and the the, the question is, what is the benefit? You know, not all questions are beneficial, and it, it's not it's not a criticism. It's just I you mean, know, I ask a lot of bad questions, but. Part of the teaching is to, part of a teaching is to recognize a bad question and help a meditator see that it, that their their mind is in the wrong way. So, you know, people, I'm accused of being smug and passive-aggressive and that's quite possible. I don't deny it, but uh, there are reasons for not, not all questions answer, deserve an answer. You know, answering a question isn't always the answer. The Buddha said there are four kinds of questions. Some you just don't answer. Some you answer with a question. Some you answer by explaining something first and then answering them. And some you answer outright. Okay, so we start with Sanka's question, which I was almost got rid of, but um, it's a good example. Sanka wants to know would an arahant commit suicide to end pain. And it's a good question. It's a very Buddhist good question, but it's not a very good question. And here I am smug again. I'm sorry. I'm not smug. I mean, I would have asked such a question, but let's ask why are we asking this question. Uh, You know, uh, if you're an arahant, it's not useful because you already know the answer. And if you're not an arahant, well, it's still not useful because it's not going to help you become an arahant but it is an interesting question um, intellectually would an arahant commit suicide and then this it's a controversial sutta the channawada sutta and the commentary does a great thing as the commentary does brushing it totally turning it on its head the commentary says he wasn't enlightened so there's this guy channa and he he's going to kill himself he's a monk and he tells sariputta that he's Finished the Buddha's teaching, which means he's an arahant, and he says, "I'm, you know, I've got this terrible pain, just unbearable. I can't do anything. I can't meditate, and I'm just suffering terribly. I'm going to end my life." And Sari Buddha says, "Oh, don't end your life." And uh, and he says, "Remember me as someone who did it blamelessly because I've already finished the Buddha's disp- I've already finished my duty." And so then he does, and Sariputta goes and sees the Buddha, and the Buddha says he does it. He did it blameless. He was blameless. You know, he wasn't blameworthy for killing. He wasn't. He died blameless. Um, and so the Buddha, it, it, the sutta makes it. If you read this, at least in the English, I haven't, I guess, read the Pali yet. But if you read it, uh, it, it, it seems quite clear that the Buddha is saying, his, him killing him? That he was an arahant. And he was an arahant who killed himself, and that was fine because he he didn't he he was he died without being reborn again. So that's difficult to to square with um, our idea of an arahant letting go. You know, why would an arahant kill himself? What what would be their you know, why, why would that be the easiest thing to do? I mean, I think personally, and, and I'm not the expert on these things That technically it is possible I mean, there's no, there's no real rules An arahant couldn't give rise to desire or aversion But an arahant does things that are the, the most appropriate thing at that time We have a, a legend of Ananda who actually killed himself uh, technically, he um, he was ready to die. He was going to die, so he knew he was. He knew his death was coming, and he 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 he, he entered into the fire casino and, and burnt himself so that people wouldn't have to look after his funeral. So technically, he killed himself. I mean, that's just a legend. I don't, but it's a story that's handed down. But the commentary says. And who's right, who's wrong, I don't know I think many people probably don't like the commentary when it says these things Because they seem very much against what the sutta actually appears to be saying But really, I mean no, I don't, don't want to get into the controversy so much But I'll tell you what the commentary says The commentary says that he wasn't an arahant And when he took the When he cut his throat he He, he got afraid and he realized he was still a putujana, an uh, unenlightened worldling And it, it freaked him out so much that he, he suddenly got this, this sense of urgency And practiced insight meditation as he was dying, as he was bleeding out And became enlightened I mean, becoming enlightened at death is a very common experience, they say it's, that's a part of the Buddhist teaching. And enlightenment at death is is fairly easy because, relatively easy because uh, it all comes to a, a, a it all comes to a head. Right? It really is the the question of Are you going to cling and everything is ceasing, realizing that you can't hold on to anything? It's very relatively easy. Uh, because everything is disappearing everything is falling apart and so you can see that and you can see your craving for things quite clearly because you're losing them all it's a very intense experience It can be so if you've done a lot of preparation which Channa had becoming enlightened as you're dying is quite reasonable so but I, mean, I think the commentary gives a reasonable explanation I just think it's problematic because of the wording of the Sutta which I mean we, we, we like to say that the suttas are, are word perfect you know, 100% what the Buddha said But um, it may very well be that the, the the context and so on was It makes more sense what the commentary said That yes, he wasn't enlightened he, because he was in great pain And what the heck, why is he upset about the pain? Aren't Arahants immune to that kind of upset? Aren't there many arahants who were in great pain and didn't kill themselves? So, that's that question. But again, I think um, yeah, it's an interesting question. It's just not. I, mean, I want to try and focus. The idea is hey, is it, what's going on in our meditation? Is there a middle ground between death in this life and rebirth in another? Right, I don't know. I mean, Tibetans certainly say there is. Some Thai people say there is. I think the point is, um, rebirth is just a concept. Nothing is ever reborn. Rebirth is a pretty bad term. We use the word patisandi, which does mean to go back. Pati means return. Re, so the re is there. Sandi, patisandi means relinking. So it does mean doing it again in that sense but but it's yeah, but that's that's different from saying rebirth. Nothing is ever reborn. Birth and death are every moment, every moment where there's an experience that is born, and then the next moment that that experience is gone, so that's what really is born and dies uh so that being said. At the moment of what we call death, many things can happen. The being can stick around. The being can travel around. You know, you hear about people who are visited by the the newly deceased. They have visions of them, visiting them. So that's certainly possible. Seems to be. Um, and then it seems that in some cases they're just gone. They're just off somewhere else, right? I think the point is that it can take some time, sometimes they're not ready to move on but it's not really a middle ground in that sense it's not two grounds and then there's this realm that they go to called the bardo that's what the Tibetans call it Uh, it's more like, well the body's died but the mind is doing something strange it's being like a spirit, like a ghost which is certainly possible I'd like to know the difference between teachings of religions teachings of religions and the politics of religions Did I I talk about the politics of religions yesterday? I don't quite understand this I mean, at face value I would say that question is referring to, yes, the politics of religions how religions can get political and um, it's all about striving for Worldly things um, Control Order it can, it can be positive In terms of cultivating society I don't I don't really have much to say on it But um, Buddhism is about the teachings of religions so It has nothing to do with politics Except in so far as you want to organize a community The question about dealing with lustful thoughts um, the compulsion to act upon it and hindrance my meditation practice. What should I do when pleasant sexual image emerge in my mind? Yeah, big question. Um. Well, I did a video on this. It wasn't perfect, but it got really popular. I think because of the the title, and someone picked it up. I mean, it's a good teaching. I think yeah, the core of it is. But, you uh, I've talked about this before recently I just did a video, a repeat of that old popular video That you have to focus not only on the image But you have to focus on the feelings And you have to focus on the cravings These are three distinct things Rupa, Vedana and Tanha and the Rupa is the form So you see something Or you hear something Vedana is the, the feeling, it makes you happy there's the pleasant pleasure. So uh, there's no such thing as a pleasant sexual image. There's the image. There's the pleasure. And then there's what we call sexual, which is the desire. There are three distinct things. And by separating them out, by focusing on one and the other, we're able to see what's actually going on. And the claim, and this is this is the way out, um, the fact that they're not actually satisfying it's not actually a system that makes you happy and so the brilliant thing is is once you see that you lose your desire of course because you've seen hey it's not uh, bringing me happiness so the real I mean it starts with not feeling guilty not feeling like a bad person because you have these pleasant images and think, oh I'm a bad meditator it's about meditating on them. Everything, with everything it's like this. Meditate on the experience. Stop judging it. And that means also judging it as a bad thing, a naughty thing. It's 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 real, it is you. You know, if you want to kill someone, stop judging that and start looking at, hey I want to kill someone. Well is that gonna make me happy? You know, not, not quite like that, but look at it and How does that, what does that do to me when I want to kill someone? We had a monk who who got into these thoughts and what happens is when when you feel guilty about the thought, of course you give it power. There's an energy, right? Anger is a mental energy, so it stimulates the brain and that that thought comes back again. When When you get upset about a thought or feel guilty about lust, the guilt... Helps store it The mind says Ah okay you know, This is something that upsets you Okay I'll hold on to that uh, Because of the energy it takes It, it stimulates the brain and It's very complicated These neuroscientists Are now trying to figure out And they've done some figuring out How the systems these systems work But it certainly stimulates Parts wow. of the brain That then bring it back to you And say Hey remember this thing How do you feel about it now Still bother you And so it appears to us, and you wonder if Mara has a part in this, but it appears to us like it's taunting, like the brain is our worst enemy. Don't want to think about something, you think about it. Don't want to feel something, you feel it. But there's an easy solution. Stop giving it power. Start looking at it, seeing it as it is. So, I hope that helps. The absurdity of Albert Camus. Well, right off, I've got a red flag here because that's not what I teach. Did you yourself have Yuta Dhammo, not even, have Yuta Dhammo, not even a feeling of absurdity in your life? The whole life, some absurd and ridiculous respect to the universe reminds the human of an ant. Hmm. I mean, it's not really, I I can't really answer that question. It's not really the sort of question that we're looking for. Um, But I feel, I hear you. I mean, this is absurd. Everything is absurd. So I I think the answer is yes. Sometimes I look at my hands and I think, what the heck? (laughs) What is this thing? So, So absolutely, it's absurd. When you, when you step out of it Because we're, we're brought up to think Well, of course, ten fingers, ten toes duh. And moreover, you know We've cultivated these ideas That God ordained it this way God looks like this In many cases They think God has ten fingers and ten toes Because God made us in God's image Which solves that problem but, but, you know, it doesn't really It's not true The truth is it's It's kind of just the way it happened It's kind of just chance Not random exactly, but it's just Just the way it worked out We could have had 12 toes, I mean, right? Some animals have fewer or more Everything is absurd about us Some of the things, you know, like wearing a robe You say, well, this robe is... What the heck is he doing wearing that robe? But I challenge that I mean, relatively speaking, this robe is far less absurd than wearing pants or underwear. You know, let alone dresses and and uh, tie bow ties and you know. This is just a rectangle of cloth. It's the absolute simplest piece of cloth. So a lot of the monk's life attempts to address that absurdity. And if we want to tie this into meditation, we can say that the meditation, of course, helps to address this absurdity. So it seems absurd to most of us to walk back and forth and sit, but for a meditator it makes perfect sense. You know, this is this is an activity that allows me the freedom to see things as they are. Um, so to stop being absurd. Right, I mean relative to people going out and dancing or drinking alcohol or lighting up fireworks Here I am smug again I have all these opinions about things Aren't monks not supposed to have opinions? I don't know, I mean I think it's in some ways useful um, And it's just laughing at ourselves I mean I've done all this, I've been there I'm not it's not about me being better than someone else Dear goodness me No, but you, know, you have to You have to Look at how absurd it is that we set off fireworks And that we celebrate Canada's 150th birthday There's an absurdity to it And so you ask, is, was Camus being smug when he saw the absurdity? No, I don't think so I think we have to It's, it's a hard truth and it's something that people don't want to see and, it's, um, and that's just the truth it's not a I'm better than them f- because of it so anyway, I hope that answers some of your question Is there a quantitative difference between mind and consciousness? I think you mean qualitative, no? quantitative has to do with quantitative and qualitative Qualitative means it's a different category Quantitative means just more or less Is there a quantitative difference? There's no difference between mind and consciousness They're the same thing Depending how you mean it Now, there's the mental aspect of experience Part of that is consciousness No, but even that is not true Consciousness is a thing And within the consciousness there are many qualities So this consciousness might be different from the next consciousness In order This moment's consciousness might be different from that moment's consciousness Because of the qualities it has But that's mind Mind is this moment, this moment So they're neither quantitatively nor qualitatively different What is the right view regarding the correct correct view to take on consciousness, in particular regarding rebirth consciousness and regular consciousness? I don't understand. View to take on consciousness. What is the right view to take on consciousness? Okay. So, then what is consciousness? Well, that you know, consciousness is moments of experience. That's right view. Is living in solitude a healthy lifestyle? Um, not always, I think It's arguable that for some people it's just going to drive them crazy But it's certainly noble It's The Buddha said it's uh, I was just reading in the Dhammapada in French The Buddha said it's hard to enjoy uh, Durama Living in the forest, living in solitude Is hard to enjoy I mean I think it can be good even if it is unpleasant Even if you are struggling in the forest Or struggling in solitude, feeling lonely It can be very useful to help you grow And to help you let go of these emotions Solitude has great benefits I mean the Buddha was constantly praising solitude So it's not always the best solution But um, I think it's something to be stri- strive striven for Something we should strive for something we should work, should think of as a great accomplishment. You know, solitude is of course two kinds, uh, kaya viveka and jitta viveka. Kaya viveka means the body becomes uh, secluded. You go off into a room somewhere. But it's quite different from jitta viveka, where the mind actually becomes secluded from the the hindrances. And that you can do in a busy street or, or airport Or anywhere But of course most easily done um, In physical solitude Do arahants really not require food? Well no one requires food If you don't get food you die It's just that arahants sometimes don't eat They sometimes don't go for food That apparently is a thing It's not common But there are stories of it Okay, there you go, questions answered. I hope I wasn't too smug. Apologies. Hmm. Try better. I think I'm pretty smug, huh? Well, my apologies. I'll try my best to remedy that. Have a good night, everyone.